Gabby, welcome to Deep Cuts Live. It's your first time. Antoine, thank you. Thank you very much. Happy New Year. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, well, thank you. Like, you know, I always tell people and people know this, like, I always make a big list of people that I want to have on the show. So you were actually on my 2022 list, but I never got around to you. Um, you know, I talked to a lot of people and you have such like a great reputation, which I know. Wow. <laughs> but people actually were like, you know, Gabby, Kathy is one of those people you have to talk to, you know, because of the boutique cigar association, because of your opinions, because of the work that you've done to be an advocate through, you know, for the FDA stuff. So I hope you know that you do have a, like I said, such a big reputation, a positive one, and that wow. people Thank want you. to hear from you. So I'm sure this our little chat today is going to be just kind of, you know, off the chain, I would just say. Thank you very much. Uh, very kind uh, words to start with. Um, I, uh, I'm grateful. I'm honored. Thank you. Yeah. Um, I want you to introduce yourself because I tell people, Deep Cuts is not for the cigar aficionado per se. This is for like those people who are new to cigars and they are a little bit nervous about walking into a cigar store, asking a question, thinking they're going to sound completely dumb or something. Um, so I want you to introduce yourself to people, uh, who you are, you know, a little bit about your company, and then we're going to, you know, kick off a, a great conversation from there. That's a great, great question. You know, uh, my name is Gabby Caffey. I'm 50 years old, uh, turning 51 in July, for those of you keeping track. Uh, you know, we came to this country as immigrants uh, legally. I have to say that nowadays people are very sensitive. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I got here to the U.S. in 1977. I was six or seven years old. Our family came from Honduras. We went to live in California. And we were the typical immigrant family, hardworking parents, uh, very disciplined, Roman Catholic upbringing. Uh, my brother and I were uh, two siblings until my sister came along about 10 years, when I was 10 years old. And uh, we lived in the West Coast up until 1993. I finished high school, uh, went to undergrad at UC California, uh, Irvine to be exact, where Apple is based so it's kind of interesting. There's so much cigar culture in the West Coast that doesn't really get mentioned, but uh, it's massive. And ended up in Miami, Florida, came here for medical school, did my residency training in Florida. And apart from becoming a doctor, Gabby Caffey is a person that loves the outdoors. I love fishing. I love offshore fishing. Uh, and I've always had a love for cigars since the uh, age uh, of 18 when I was introduced to them in Honduras, on the beach with a cousin of mine. And uh, people always ask me, what was the first cigar you smoked? And it was a Hoya de Monterrey made in Honduras at the time. And it's just been an interesting story because a lot of us are immigrants to this country, most newer than not, right? A lot of us came to the U.S. after the 50s, 60s, uh, 1970s. And... Becoming an immigrant, coming to this country as an immigrant is is very difficult. Uh, I'm not going to go deep into it, but one of the challenges is that I grew up in a home where my parents spoke Arabic and Spanish. Wow. <laughs> so it was, I would say English was my third language. And one of the things that I remember 
the most being in California, being in third or fourth grade is coming home one day. And my dad, who he spoke English with an accent and his obviously his first language was Spanish. But he said to my brother and I, he says, listen, no more Spanish at home. We're only going to speak English because I want you guys to speak English perfectly. And his 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 madness with that topic was that he wanted us to never be treated as if though we were not Americans. And obviously the definition of American has changed a lot over the years. It's a very accepting term nowadays. But in the 80s and 90s, if you spoke with an accent, no matter where you were, you were also you automatically labeled a foreigner. So it, it's been a very interesting journey uh, now that we have children. I have a 14-year-old son, a 10-year-old daughter. We're trying to raise them bilingual, Spanish and English. We live in Miami. It's only proper. But the, the most fascinating thing about me as a person and how I've evolved, I think, has been the influence of so many international business partners in over 47 countries that I think my upbringing helped me to establish those relationships and understand how to work and build partnerships with people from different countries, different cultures, different languages. It's, it's a global economy that we live in now. And, and a lot of, it's interesting. I was talking to one of our new distributors in Abu Dhabi in the UAE. And he says to me, he goes, our first conversation, he says to me, you know, Gabby, we have something we have a deep passion in common, and you don't know what that is. Of course, you know, we're, we both love cigars, but he says it's not cigars. He says to me, I love offshore fishing. And the interesting thing about the offshore world is a lot of the guys that are tuning in, they'll know what I'm talking about, uh, chasing pelagics, going down, you know, uh, deep sea fishing, whatever it is that you're going after. Um it's like when you open up the conversation to golf. I'm not a golfer, but when you start talking in a room, if you're a golfer and you're talking to golfers, everyone clicks. And the offshore big game fishing world has something very similar as well as cigars does. So it's a real beautiful industry. I'm honored to be a part of it. Um, I love creating I love being self-made. I love the concept of uh, sacrifice and struggle is what builds great companies. And that's been the journey I'm on. And a lot of people, uh, when you're looking out through the window, right, looking in, you're just getting a segment of what goes on in a 24-hour day of my life. And there are struggles, there are ups and downs, there's moments we celebrate, few and far between. I wish I could say we celebrate every day, but it seems like 90% of the time it's just that focus, dedication, struggle, sacrifice, and staying disciplined to be able to execute on what our plans are. That's Gabby Kathy. Awesome. Um, you talked about your father, and I'm really curious uh, about what was your relationship like with your father? Because I find that a lot of people are actually defined by that relationship. That's a really good question. I'll share something with you that I don't share often, probably never, is my, my dad passed away at 62. I was about 28 at the time. 
I can look at you in the eyes and tell you that he not once said, I love you to me, to my brother. I don't know if my, I think my sister got away with a few I love yous, right? <laughs> but, <laughs> of course. But it, it was something that was kind of, mom was a different story, but dad was such a strong charactered man. Uh, I really like to think that he was too busy showing us that he loved us than telling us. There's a big difference. I think you know the difference between the two. But Pops had the type of character where making errors was not an option. Growing up and not making the family proud was not an option. Growing up and not having direction was not an option. Uh, failure was not an option. There were so many things that were not options because of what he demanded. And he demanded it in a very quiet way. It's not like he was loud or physical or abusive. He's Not once did he put a finger on me. Mm -hmm. But it was just that disciplined man, six foot two, 240 pounds, strong character, came from a very strong character family, but just knew the type of children he wanted to raise. And... Um, He's the one that got us started into fishing. And I'll, I'll give you the his reasoning behind fishing, which is actually quite brilliant, is Saturday mornings up at 4.35 a.m., right? Imagine you have children, they're teenagers. What do they want to do Friday night? They want to go hang out with their friends. They want to stay up till 2, 3 in the morning. Uh, Pops made it a rule. We would go fishing on Saturday mornings. And he was leaving the house at 5 a.m. That meant we had to be in bed by 10, 10.30 Friday night. There was no going out. We were going to bed because we all wanted to go fishing. And my brother and I had that structure, I would say, well into our teens. Mm -hmm. So we knew Saturday morning we were going fishing. And we loved to fish. And we had a great time. So it was, it, it's, it's, when you take young children with all that energy and they want to go out, they want to go have fun. They want to party. They want to start drinking early. They want to do a lot of stuff. Kids are going to do what kids do. And pops was very good at figuring out in a subliminal way, how to keep us busy and keep us out of trouble so that we could accomplish. My, I got to tell you, my older brother's a vascular surgeon in Pensacola, Florida. Uh, when he became a doctor, I said, heck, I got to become a doctor. I'm not going to fall behind. You know, Mm -hmm. So it's it was it's good to put your children under pressure, but good pressure. Guide them in the right direction. And my father was really, really good at that. And I, I would having children now, it's really difficult to know if I'll be able to do as good a job as he did. But uh, I think life is very simple. Try your best and stay out of trouble. That's, that's really all you got to do, you know? And, and that's what I could say about dad. Thanks for asking that question. Oh, no, thank you for sharing. Like I said, I know it's, uh, that, that question is usually a very personal question, and it's not something that you're accustomed to hearing uh, on a cigar-related podcast. But I think it's important for people to kind of, you know, think about their relationship because, like I said, your father, um, you know, your relationship with your mother is important, but your father tends to be like that one pattern that really shapes who you are in some way. I'll tell you one other story, if I may. Mm -hmm. 
And I remember being 11 years old. We lived in California. My parents had a liquor store in uh, Tustin Ranch. It was called House of Liquors. Beautiful store, 4,000 square feet. Uh, it was Pops's pride and joy. I mean, he really uh, built up a great business. And uh, I forgot the address, but I looked it up on Google Earth the other day. One of the things I remember vividly was my godfather, uh, Mario Bukele. My godfather is, he passed away, but he's the uncle of the president of, Hunder, uh, of El Salvador. If you've heard of Nayib Bukele, the president of El Salvador, current president, my godfather was his uncle. Wow. So very disciplined man, uh, very intelligent politician, businessman. So he came to California, came to visit us, wanted to take us to Disneyland. So we, of course, the kids are going, you know, my brother and I are excited to go to Disneyland. And I remember the morning he met us at the business, my dad's store. It was around 9, 9.30 in the morning. My dad was there. And as an 11-year-old child, I was thinking my parents are coming along with me, right? Our, our, we're a family. We're all going to go together. We're going to go have fun at Disneyland. And we get in my uncle's car. I guess he was – I don't remember if he was renting or not. But we get in his car. We're sitting in the back seat. And I'm kind of by the window. And as – it hit me at that moment when I saw my dad out in front of the store with a broom sweeping the front of the store as the car turns on and we're driving off to Disneyland. And till this day, I remember I shed a tear. It wasn't so much that my dad wasn't going. It was a reason of why he wasn't going. It was at that very moment that I realized that here's my dad, you know, busting his ass, working he could shut the store down, go have a great day, but the sacrifices that our parents made, if you acknowledge them, and I think if every person acknowledges the sacrifices that their parents made, then you won't take the privileges you've been given for granted. And I think that's a lot of what, where my work ethic comes from, is I think being lazy is disrespectful to them, and disrespectful to any gifts that we've received from. I'm a man of faith, and I believe God blesses us with gifts. And I think that we have to show gratitude. And the way to do that is by being disciplined, being a good man or woman, working hard. And of course, have a good time. But, you know, don't ever forget your true north. I think that's the secret. And we're not talking about a lot of people confuse success with money. And I think that's the biggest fallacy we make because if you think about all the things that God created on earth, he did not create money. So when you look at mankind or humanity chasing constantly, I'll repeat that chasing constantly. The one thing that God did not create, there's a problem with how we measure success. Mm. There's a big problem. I think Success is a is a world unto its own. It's it's a multidiscipline. It has to do with your faith, your family, your friends. I think your core beliefs and, and the impact that you have on anything, your environment, people, friends, somebody you run across in the street, that interaction that you had. Uh, I think you measure success by 
being able to go to sleep at night at peace with yourself. And that's something that you cannot quantify. I think that was definitely the the aha moment so far in the interview, because uh, I'm always interested in, in that kind of stuff, because I think in, in business, too many people get wrapped up in that, you know, account sheet and that P&L, you know, profit and loss. Right. And and they, they kind of miss the whole point of, the, you know, of why you want to do the work. It's not always, like you said, for the profit, because you can lose money and you can make that money, but you can never make that time that you spent chasing the money, you know? So it's like, we have to kind of change the way that we kind of think about business and why we are chasing, as you said, certain things. But before well, we get, you know, deep ahead. into it, I, I definitely want to make sure that we talk about, you know, your business and the cigar thing. So, <laughs> you know, the, the question that I had for you was, you know, I know you as, as I know every time that we correspond, I usually always say, doctor, you know, oh. Dr. Kathy, it's <laughs> such like that. Um, and I think, but how does, you know, how does a doctor get into cigars? And I think that's a good question because a lot of people, uh, as I was telling you earlier, you know, I spend time on TikTok, not doing the dancing videos wow. like most people think, but, you know, I, I, I'm posting educational content about cigars. And I still see that there's so many people and it's a wide range of, of ages of people, you know, it's young adults to, you know, older adults. And they have this still a very negative connotation about smoking, which to, to yes. some degree, I think they should if it's like cigarettes. And I'm not saying that cigars, you know, I'm not a medical professional. I can't speak to that, you know, how cigars kind of rank up against, you know, cigarettes, but it's like the conversation is all jumbled up into one because I've seen people, you know, when they, they talk about, you know, it's all tobacco. It's like, just like the FDA stuff. It's like vapor, vapor, e-cigarettes, you know, cigars, everything is like in one big category, cigarettes. And I'm like trying to unjumble it. And it's like, it's a lot of work to unjumble it and to educate them. So how does a doctor, get into cigars and then like how do you i'm sure you, you've had that question come up to you before it's like you know I, I think somebody posted on tiktok like how does like like how do you justify smoking cigars oh, are you boy. worried about cancer are you worried about lung issues are sure, how do you sure. deal with all that all right so uh i'll keep it structured and then we'll get into the the shit hit the fan conversation right right um, how does a doctor get into the cigar industry? First of all, let me tell you real quick why I'm no longer practicing medicine. In 2008, I, de I developed an, a disease of the eyes called central serous retinopathy. And what it is, it's bleeding behind the retina, which causes retinal detachments. And then when the retina attaches again, it forms scar tissue. So unfortunately, I got it in both eyes and I've got my vision affected, uh, in both eyes. I lost central vision in my left eye. I lost peripheral vision in my right. It's a chronic condition. It does not cause blindness, but I'll be honest, it's a pain in the ass. And one of the things I live with the most that probably nobody knows until now that I mention it is just migraines two to three times a week. And it's from, obviously I have to work. I'm a workaholic. I love to work. I love to create. I love to build. 
I don't do well if I'm just sitting around doing nothing. And in 2008, when my ophthalmologist said to me, I can't release you, I can't give you medical clearance to go back to work. Uh, it was a very difficult moment. I've already digested that experience. I'm not going to start crying right now, but I have many times before. <laughs> but uh, it was difficult. My wife was pregnant. Uh, we had a child on the way. I had bought a house, you know, mortgage, typical American family, two car payments. And here I am being told that I can't work anymore as a doctor. And that's all I knew how to do as to make a living. Uh, it was a three-year hiatus where not only could I not practice medicine anymore, but about six months after I was told I couldn't practice medicine anymore, they told me I couldn't drive anymore. So a lot of people are wondering, well, how come Caffey's got a cigar company? How come he's not doing events all over the country, traveling, visiting shops? Well, I have limitations, guys. And it's funny because I've gone to Intertobacco a couple times, and I always take somebody with me. I'll get lost. I Seriously, I, I have trouble with the signs, the reading, the high. I can't do that stuff. I'm not saying I'm handicapped, but I have limitations, right? During my three years off, oh, let's just be real. I was sitting on my ass <laughs> three years off. Um, one of the things that kept me sane, because the doctors, I love my doctors, in case they're all going to watch this. You know what doctors do? If, if you're feeling down, they give you a freaking Lexapro. If you're feeling moody, they give you another freaking double your dose of Lexapro. If you get, they put me on medications that just weren't doing right by me. I felt like a zombie. And I, I came home my, one day, I told my wife, honey, I can't take this shit anymore. I, I have, there's no ups and downs, right? So usually people have ups, you know, you're happy, you're sad, you kind of go in between throughout your day. When you're on one of those mood stabilizers because of what Lexapro is, it just kind of keeps you there in the middle range. So you're kind of like, like a freaking doorknob. You're not ups and downs and after about six months, I just, I told my doctor I was taking it. I just got off of that shit. I could, I'm sorry. I did the same thing. <laughs> okay, good, good, good. <laughs> no disrespect to anybody taking right. it. But um, they weren't for me. It was, and mind you, I'm the guy that through med school, I was smoking cigars while I was studying for exams. Uh, it was just my, it's always been my thing. Uh, cigars have always kind of, relaxed me to the point where now I can take those one or two or three hours of, you know how it is, higher concentration. You're, you've got to be alone. All progress is made when you're alone, thinking, learning, understanding, conceptualizing. That's when all progress occurs. I tell my children, I'll get back to the topic. I tell my children, don't live in a constantly distracted state. That's what we suffer from today as a society. We suffer from a constantly distracted state. Get out of that and, and go into the creative center. Because in, in life today, you're either a creator or a consumer. So you got to decide early on, where do you want to be most of your time? You want to create or you want to consume? And I've always been a creator. Um but a doctor going into uh, uh, the cigar industry, 
you know, I was doing a lot of fishing during that time where I was off. I had the fortune of having great friends uh, in Miami. It's not hard to find people that love to fish. This is like the fishing Mecca of the world. Right. Mm -hmm. And uh, I had started a big game fishing lures company about a year after I was laid off or I was off of work from being a doctor. Um, that's a whole other show. Let me tell you. Um, I started a fishing lures company that within about 14 months, we had distribution in 24 countries. We made fishing lures for big game fishing. And um, that company lasted for about three years. It was acquired. I'm not going to go into that because I can't. We signed uh, no compete. We signed. I, I can't talk about that. But we built a very successful company. Uh, in Australia, our lures were known as the Mercedes-Benz of fishing lures. They were just fantastic. They were high quality. Uh, you got to remember, I studied biology, and I wanted to be a marine biologist when I was in undergrad. So that kind of gave me some real insight as to if you're going to develop fishing lures, what should it be like? What should it swim like? What should it look like? What should the shades be like? Because fish don't see color. Fish see shades. The colors are for humans. When we go into the store, we see a beautiful red or purple lure. We buy it. We like it. But in reality, the fish are seeing shades of those colors. During my fishing years, I was smoking cigars. And it was during a tournament that we were fishing in the Bahamas in 2012. Uh, we actually won that tournament. A good friend of mine, Captain Bruce Burnett, was running a 63 Bertram. The owner of the boat was a friend of mine, Luis Perez. He invited me to come out. We spent a month a month fishing uh, Cat Island. Uh, the entire time, I'm smoking luxury cigars on this yacht. I won't, I'm not going to mention brands, but they were $30 plus dollars each cigar, every cigar, for an entire month. And I've always been a cigar aficionado. I was the guy that always went into my local retailer, bought cigars, and left. I, did, I don't even think I even said hi to anybody. I walked in, bought, and left, right? Mm -hmm. And I, I noticed that there was – back then, the, the, the sweet spot for cigars was in the 5 to $6 range. And I noticed that there was a void in that range. There was an absence of quality. Uh, I started to really look at the brands, uh, look at who's producing what, where it's coming from. Uh, that was a time when it was post-cigar boom, about a decade into it. The industry was stagnant. I remember that year Cameroon was hot. Everybody was chasing Cameroon cigars. Uh, at that time, I had no idea what that was. And um, I felt that there was a place for us uh, in our family story, being that we have a 120-year family story in Honduras, because we were not only immigrants to the U.S., but our ancestors were immigrants to Honduras. And Caffey 1901 represents the Caffey family immigrant story to the Americas. That's when it started. That's when my grandfather left England, arrived in New York at Ellis Island. And it was three months later that he went from New York down to uh, Honduras, arrived at Puerto Cortez, the port of Cortez in Honduras. So when I look at our family's journey, 
being third generation Honduran, always loving cigars. In my eyes, I was seeing a void in a certain segment of quality boutique cigars at a certain price point coming from family-owned cigar companies. You know, back then you had five, six, seven names that were becoming big, but as they were becoming big, they were getting acquired. And what happens is it kind of created, I felt that it created an absence of, you know, the guy that started his own company and wanted to build his own brand and had a vision for what he wanted to create. Everything became operated by multinational companies. And as we see today, it's even more pronounced than it was 10 years ago. So I felt that there was a void, uh, but I will tell you something. And we'll get back into how a doctor gets into premium cigars, but that void that was created has not been easy to fill because the pockets of the big companies are just so unlimited that their marketing dwarfs any message, any voice that we have. So we, if we're not making great cigars, we're going out of business. And that's the beauty of boutique cigars is that you can really bet, you know, look, it's funny, right? Uh, it's 2023 now. You've got people that go on YouTube. They'll literally watch a review on a car like the Ford Bronco, right? Mm-hmm. And they'll order one. It's a $70,000 car. They'll order it without ever driving it. But yet we still live in a day and age where in the cigar industry, most retailers won't buy a cigar unless they first smoked, smoked it. Right. It's kind of like a disparity. That same retailer bought a $130,000 Tesla without even touching it, but yet won't give the young entrepreneur, the guy who's busting his ass, won't risk buying a box to put it on the shelf to really support the dream of that man, that family, that woman. I think there's got to be a come to Jesus moment in our industry where um, as much, look, it's not free to give samples. Uh, We want to give them to everybody. At the end of the day, what given out a lot of free samples does is it drives the price of the product up. And what I want people to know is I'm not going to risk my family's everything to make a shitty cigar. So if if we reach out to you, it's because we want to work with you. If we call you, we want to work with you. If you want to try a sample, we'll give you a sample. But I think there's got to be a reality check because there's too many people asking for too many samples. And we all know the FDA has made it illegal to hand out samples to random people. You can't do that anymore. But um, I think we can help each other get to better places if we just run more efficient operations, businesses, especially for us, for retailers, we all need to come together. I, w- I know I went on a rant. I'm sorry, man. No, it's good. Um, what's your What's your definition of boutique in terms of cigars? Wow. So you all know I'm the founder of the Boutique Cigar Association. Mm-hmm. I'm going to tackle the doctor cigar question after this. <laughs> Boutique is a philosophy. Boutique is a hands-on approach. Boutique is you don't outsource anything. By that, I mean from the design to the band to the artwork to the vector graphics to the printing 
You have to be involved in each and every step of the way, selecting of the tobacco, creating the blends. If the tobacco is not ready, you're there during the entire process. And it's very, not just time intensive. Let's be honest. Most cigar company owners, I'm not going to sit here and say it's labor intensive because we're, we're like, uh, how can we say it? We're the guys or the gals that decide if something is going to pass or not. But we have teams that are doing all the hard work. We're just involved in supervising the entire work. And boutique is a philosophy. It's, it doesn't really, in my mind, I learned something valuable recently. I was at La Aurora last year, the factory. Mm -hmm. The first time there, a year and a half or two years ago, First time there, and I'm seeing this beautiful, impressive, organized, clean, outstanding factory. And there were six rollers off to the left that kind of caught my attention. And I grabbed, I was alone. Nobody was, you know, they, I, I like to wander and do stuff on my own. I don't like to be supervised, right? Mm -hmm. And I go over there, and I see these six rollers and a supervisor, and they're, they're making one cigar. And I start talking to them. Being bilingual helps, right? And I find out that there's a certain cigar that they only roll 100 cigars a day of. It's their preferido. It's uh, If you've ever seen the tubes, the cigar tubes that they make, it's a double mm -hmm. torpedo. Um, here's this huge factory. Impressive operation. Operating a section of their factory as boutique as it gets even more boutique than when I had my own factory in Honduras that I considered boutique. So when you ask me, what do I think boutique means? I think it's a philosophy. It's an approach. It's a attitude. It's how you operate. It's the steps that you take in the process, the production scale, and also the end product? Are you rushing it? Is it how long are you aging it? Are you testing it? Are you making sure this is what you wanted to create? Boutique is a beautiful word. Now, most people will think of a boutique like, you know, uh, uh, like here on in Coral Gables on Miracle Mile, there's a bunch of boutiques, clothing stores, right? Mm -hmm. It's a one-off. It's just a small shop. You go in there and this is what they have, nothing else. The term boutique means literally small. But in the cigar industry, it also means quality. And it means the, philosoph the philosophical approach of how you make a certain premium cigar. Now, you can have big factories that are mass-producing cigars, but they can have a segment of their boutique production. I can understand that. I can see that. And I've seen it firsthand. Now, when it comes to the BCA, the term boutique is different. Now, the FDA made a fallacy in their definition of what a small cigar company is. The FDA's impression of what a small cigar company is, one that generates $5 million or less a year or has 20 or less employees. And when I read that, I said to myself, whoa, so, they have just missed the boat. They have no idea what boutique cigar companies are. Right. So, the Boutique Cigar Association was established, established to identify the segment of the industry, and we set a cap of 1 million cigars or less a year. 
That's that's a very good cap that was accepted by a lot of people, probably 98%. There was only two people that complained. One, because they were doing 1.1 million <laughs> and nothing against them. They're still boutique. But we're trying to identify small companies so that when the FDA comes around and wants to put a knife at our throat, we could demonstrate to them, look how many companies you're going to put out of business because these are companies that cannot afford the regulatory process. And we've been able to work with CRA and PCA side by side to get the message across, and we've been very effective at it. And it's been hard work. Uh, you know, we do non-for-profit work at the BCA. We're organizing. We're getting our message across. It's a volunteer organization. There's seven board of directors. Um but there are two definitions. There's the I, I call it the administrative definition, and then there's the passionate definition to boutique cigars. 